Hello and welcome to Do Not Steal, a podcast about tabletop criticism and, more importantly, ROCs. I'm your host, Olivia Joseph, and with me I have... Hannah Yola. Hi. Hello. Uh, what game are we doing? I don't know. How do we intro this podcast? <laughs> we, I don't know. Yeah, we, we typically don't do a lot of, like, pre-intro banter. Uh, not one of those types of podcasts. Have you played any tabletop games lately? Yeah. Yeah, I have, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm kind of, like, in between, like, really major long-term campaigns right now, but... I've been having fun with a little just experiment in D&D that Nora's been running. Um, You know, D&D, about as shitty of a system as I expected it to, but it's still really fun to to play games with, like, you know, people that you like, people that are cool. So, you know, you can see how it manages to get popular if you think it's the only thing in town. Mm Mm-hmm. D&D owes a lot to the fact that it is just fun to hang out with your friends. Yeah, yeah. And, like, 5e, I think, owes a lot especially to the fact that, like, streaming and, like, uh, voice chats became, like, so much more technologically feasible about the same time that it came out. Um, And it's just like, oh, we're in a renaissance of tabletop RPG popularity right now. Is it because there's, like, anything specific to that system? No. It is just because it is, it is just because you no longer have to hang out with those, like, weird, uncomfortable nerd guys at your school. God, yeah. Oh, my God. Um, Did you ever have any, like, horror stories of, of early tabletop games and the people that you were kind of, like, forced to play because they were the ones available? I do, but I don't want to put them on the podcast, you know? I feel you, yeah. Um, oh, I, w- I will say, real briefly, I had a guy who wanted to play a slave owner <laughs> in, in a game of Dungeons and Dragons. Oh, man. That's sick. And got, and, got, and got really mad when we all tried to sit him down and explain, like, okay, buddy, one, this is fucked up yeah. to do. Two... None of us are playing characters that would willingly associate with a slave owner. So, if your guy tried to hang out with our guys, our guys would probably kill him. Mm-hmm. And then he was like, this isn't fair. What, what the fuck? You just kill me? Just because I own slaves? It's like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That's fucking sick. Um, I'm not going to plug it on this podcast, but, like, there is a uh, horror story that I have posted online before about a really, really awful RPG that I was in long term. Um, mm-hmm. If you know, you know, and if you don't know, then I guess you can DM me for it. Um, but mm-hmm. it's it's very long and very ornate, so not really worth going into here. The second, the second any hor- any tabletop horror story starts with, so there was a secret system that none of us knew about. It's like, <laughs> oh, you know this is going to suck. Yeah, you know the one I'm talking about. All right. Um, yeah, I think that's all I've been really doing as far as, like, tabletop, aside from, like, uh, you know, as always, prepping for uh, Do Not Steal an Original Character Podcast. And I think now might be the time where we reveal what this episode is about. Yeah, we are talking about Heart, the City Beneath, um, which is, which is, uh, if you don't like 
follow the uh if you don't follow like the tabletop scene i feel like it's kind of like the the darling of this year yeah uh by grant howard and christopher taylor by the way Mm -hmm. illustrated by felix miel edited by helen gold and mary hamilton layout and design by jay isles produced by mary hamilton and that looks like the fullest of credits yeah um it is had to say heart in just a few seconds um it is about a kind of like subterranean realm um, that is all corrupted and kind of twisty and screwed up and about being a bunch of guys who explore that realm and eventually die there. Yeah. Um, That's the vibe. Yeah, it's uh, there, there's like a list and, you know, a lot of games have these, but like there's a list of like suggested media that you can like look at as inspirations in the back. And I feel like Probably the biggest one, just as far as, like, making it click for people, um, is going to be, like, if you've ever played Darkest Dungeon, it's it's very similar to that, where it's, like, about delving into some weird shit. Um, it's about, like, it's, it's not really necessarily, like, a fully, um, like, wargamey type of tactical game, but, like, there, there is a lot of emphasis on, like, resource management and attrition in it. And, like, things slowly getting worse in ways that you can only kind of, like, partially push back on. Um, Bloodborne is another big influence. Um, yeah, it's it's generally that, that type of, like, uh, roadside picnic slash stalker slash stalker video games. Um, they also list Annihilation. Yeah. Is a good... Yeah, like... yeah. Um, and Annihilation obviously being, like, more, you know modern day sci-fi um i think that like this is a game where like people are pictured in art wearing like you know tricorner hats and shit so the the bloodborne or darkest dungeon comparisons are i think like a little more aesthetically immediate but as far as just like also the ghouls have like um power armor yeah the 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 gnolls have like power armor and stuff and there is a there is a technology domain so it's it's not the kind of like primary aesthetic but it is definitely present yeah absolutely and and i i think that like it it kind of like delights in having um while there is kind of like a central aesthetic or a, a vibe that like you can kind of um extend to it uh like the heart itself like the the nexus of all the weirdness is described repeatedly as a red wet heaven um and that feels like pretty indicative of like the vibe um but i think it does kind of just like delight in saying no there's there's, like a million things going on and you don't have to like necessarily limit yourself to one of these possible aesthetics um your heart can be different from someone else's heart uh you can you know it's it's good to kind of like surprise people with like things that their characters wouldn't be expecting to find down here um and i think that that allows for a lot of like aesthetic and tonal versatility yeah i think that is like one thing that the game does very well is both establishing like an aesthetic for itself if you don't want to if you kind of want to just take your cues from the book as it's written um but also saying like but also giving you that space if you were somebody who wants to do something else to just make it very easy for you to be like, yeah, here you go. Like, just go for it. Um, and I think that's like one of the, the very cool things about it. Um, I found the picture of the, the gnolls in their little power armor and 
I love these dudes. Yeah, they're really dudes. Um, and I love that about them. I'm sending you those guys. I think I'm looking at the same one, but let me just confirm. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, some great dudes. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna tweet this image out um, as we promote this oh, yeah. episode. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, you always want to do the uh, the uh, the additional materials. Mm-hmm. So yeah, as far as as far as gameplay, right? Yeah. Like the the mechanics of heart. Um, the the role mechanic is that you know um, each. You know, there are, there's a set of skills, which are exactly what they sound like. They are the skills, the things that your characters do, um, that are just verbs like hunt, discern, sneak, evade, compel, things like that. And then there are domains, which are sort of broader areas of knowledge um, that are tied to a place. So... Uh, a plit, you know, a network of like tunnels can have the Warren domain. A city can have the Haven domain, and places can be multiple things at once. So if you had an under, you know, if you had a city in a network of tunnels, that would be a Haven and Warren domain. So whenever you try to do an action as your character, you're building a dice pool, which, which is very simple. It's a lot simpler than the Star Wars dice pool. Yeah. Um, but you you get one dice for free. Um, you get a die if you have the relevant skill you're trying to use. And you get a die if you have one of the domains that you're trying to use. You get another die if you have a specialty in the skill that you're trying to use that applies. And you get another die if you are what's called rolling with mastery. Which is kind of a fictional or sometimes mechanical like indication that in this specific situation you have it under control yeah um, more than you normally would yeah like mastery for example is like the 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 most like kind of basic and repeatable way to get it is um if you already have a skill and then you take an advance that gives you that skill again then you get what's called a knack which is kind of like a specialization so like you know you can have a a kill knack uh, for like ambushing um, or mm-hmm. something like that, um, but then there's also like you know various like um, abilities uh, that are just baked into your advances that say like oh you can roll for mastery under these specific circumstances. So it's it's really just about like you know adding up the circumstances for a given role. It's like okay, well am I am I in the appropriate domain? Am I trying to do the appropriate skill? do I have an appropriate ability that gives me mastery? And so I just like answering a couple questions, comparing them to a difficulty rating and rolling that many dice. Yeah. And you're rolling D10s in this game. And so for normal actions, um, it's a, a one is a critical failure. So you fail and you take double stress. And we'll talk about stress in a little bit. Two to five is a failure, normal failure. Six to seven is a success at a cost, so you succeed in what you're trying to do, but you take stress. Eight to nine is a success with no stress, and then a critical success, uh, you know, you succeed, you take no stress, and you, 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 what's called increase outgoing stress die, which is basically just increase the effectiveness of whatever you're trying to do um, by one step. So 
it's success or failure is basically a 50 50 but there are gradients of success where you get do what you're trying to do but also you take a cost which is the stress mechanic yeah um stress the stress mechanic it's basically your health in this game um the way your health like the health of your character is represented with stress and with fallout and the way that the game explains it which i really like is that stress is kind of an abstract measure of just kind of like daily wear and tear or like just the wear and tear of situations you're in and then fallout which can happen when you take stress is a specific narrative and mechanical consequence so you can have like 10 fortune stress and that doesn't do anything to you necessarily but it is just a representation of you are really pushing your luck and uh odds are eventually your luck's gonna run out and then you'll take a fallout and that will be you know the the kind of like material consequence of having pushed your luck in a lot of situations so stress is stress is represented in five categories mm-hmm. which are blood echo mind fortune and supplies i feel like they're pretty self-explanatory they're just areas that like you can be stressed and receive consequences in yeah. um, echo echo is the one that is related to like corruption from the heart um kind of like supernatural corruption or consequences um but so, for example, if you are rolling to stab someone and you succeed with a cost, you know, the the game master could be like, okay, you stab him, but he gets you. So you take like a D6 worth of blood stress. And that is representing like, you know, you the kind of risk and the wear and tear that you're taking under engaging in this combat. Um, and so whenever you take stress, you are also rolling a... What die do you roll for the fallout test? Um, I believe that it's just uh, like it's it's not that you roll a separate die for the fallout test, but it's that when you're like rolling stress, um, you oh no, sorry, I think it's a d12, and you compare it yeah, to your it, current it stress total. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, say in that situation, you take four blood stress. Okay, and you only have four blood stress at this point, but because you took stress, you have to do a fallout test. So you roll the d12, and let's say you rolled an eight, and you compare it to your total stress. If you have under your total stress, you take fallout. So um, doing fallout tests with less stress is good. Doing fallout tests with more stress is bad. And if you, if your result on the fallout test is lower than your total stress, but over over a six then you take a major fallout whereas if you are under your stress but also under six you take a minor fallout Mm -hmm. um i think it's i think it's a bit complicated to explain but i think like just kind of once you get it once you start playing it it makes it makes a lot of very intuitive sense yeah i i think that just like the the simple way to explain it is that like as you suffer more of the stress you know which as we described is kind of like pushing your luck and and getting like deferred consequences, um, the more likely it becomes that it's going to come crashing down on you. And like, it can go really wrong really quickly. Um, Mm -hmm. Cause like technically all it really takes is that like, okay, well, if you have enough stress going on um, that you 
are at risk of suffering a major fallout, um, and you suffer two major fallouts, then it's at the GM's discretion to combine those into a critical fallout, which just straight up kills you. Um, and and like even the minor fallouts are nothing to sneeze at, right? Yeah. Like your the blood fallouts especially are nasty. So like. There's a blood fallout called um, Tired that just says you can't use any of your skills until you have this healed. Mm-hmm. So if, even if you suffer minor blood fallout, then you get tired, then you can't use your skills. That means every other action that you take is going to be worse, which means you have more chances of, of getting stressed because your dice pools are smaller, more chances of getting fallout. And so you can really easily see how these things get worse and worse, you know? Yeah. It's it's also very much a situation where, like, okay, well, that's how you accrue your stress and your fallout. But surely there are systems to remove them, right? And the answer is yes, but um, it's a lot more difficult to do so and a lot more, like, costly and meaningful to do so than it would be in other systems. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the idea that, like, th- it's pretty rare to have opportunities to actually, like, remove stress or especially remove fallout um, without expending a resource. Um, and those are like the main uh, method by which you can do it. Um, you can carry around these resources, which will have like a size and a domain. And when you're in an appropriate domain, you can kind of like cash those in uh, you know, you can trade them to, to people who provide services and say, that, like, okay, I'm in a haven. I can give this D6, you know, bottle of liquor um, as a uh, payment to someone for healing my blood stress. Um, and then they'll be able to heal my blood stress up to a D6. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you still have to roll, and you yeah. can roll poorly. And even if you roll poorly, you have still expended the resource. Yeah, it's it's not a situation where it's just like, okay, well, you heal up to full after every um, encounter or whatnot. It's it's very much about, like, having these ongoing um, consequences and wear and tear and the idea that, like, uh, y- you're not going to come out of this unscathed. Um, and you might be saying, wow, that sounds like shit, like, w- but, but will my character die eventually? The answer is yes. Um, and that's something that I really appreciate about this game. Yeah, um, I, I think a really good way that the, that the game explains itself, you know, is it, it kind of lays out all these systems and then, and then kind of says what you said, like, doesn't this mean it's very easy for characters to die and feels almost inevitable? And the game says, yeah, because this is a game about characters who are doing dangerous things and are working their way towards, like, the end of their story. And your goal as a player is not to, you know succeed at all the fights and win the day and get the big items it is about kind of like having this character having this concept for what the you know what their eventual death and end of their story is going to be like and basically guiding them to that in a compelling way which i think is very refreshing honestly yeah i think so um i think that like i i don't want to get too sidetracked from this because it kind of like naturally leads into a discussion of the beat system but what I just want to say before we get there is how much I love that this game uh, kind of like encourages you to be very deliberate about arcs. Um, because like 
on just a selfish level, that's how I play games anyway. Um, whenever I make a character, I, I like immediately come up with, all right, here's a dozen ideas for how their art could turn out, and it would have this beat, and this beat, and this beat, or it would have this beat, and that beat. Um, and, you know, it's it's important to be, like, kind of open to change, open to, uh, like, unexpected things that the GM throws at you, and to not just kind of, like, have a fully clear idea from the get-go, but I really enjoy that way of thinking about RPGs. I also really enjoy the idea that, like, there are useful and compelling things to model in RPGs besides, like, incremental success upon incremental success. Um, Mm -hmm. I find it, like, kind of odd that, like, in in so many of these RPGs, like, um, odd is maybe the wrong word. I think, like, a little narratively unsatisfying. But I find it a little narratively unsatisfying that, like, you're expected to win every encounter. That you're expected to just kind of, like, linearly grow in power. And for many games, like, I really, you know, have no problem with that. That's, like, the intended mode of this story. That's what the the stories are about. But I think that if we compare it to another game that we had earlier on this podcast, uh, Fate Ignite Array... You know something I really loved about the the run of that that both you and I played in? Mm-hmm. What I loved is that I had a plan for my character to die about midway through the game and that that allowed me to really like frame her story up in emotionally satisfying ways that kind of like had the important highs and lows and allowed me to kind of fill out this story completely um, and feel very satisfied where it ended. And that's because the game is one that tells you, like, yeah, it's totally, you know, many of you are going to have to die or at least otherwise be, like, eliminated from the conflict. Um, And I think that having that encouragement to think about your character in a different way lets you do so many cool things that I think you can't necessarily do if the assumption is just that, like, uh, well, I can't necessarily, like, kill them off here because, like, there will be so much work to come up with a new character and would that even make sense to add one to the party and so forth and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I don't want to turn it into the D&D bashing podcast, <laughs> but, it's, like... It's a, it's a rhetorically useful thing to do, so hit me. It is because D&D sucks ass, but, like, the thing about D&D is that, like, the association between character death and Dungeons and Dragons is like, we have an unfair DM, you know, of like, you know, the, the rocks fall, everyone dies trope of like the way the characters are like in, in our pop culture imagination die in like Dungeons and Dragons, the most popular tabletop RPG is like something goes like deeply wrong or maybe something is like rigged, you know? Yeah. Um, those are games where like, you're supposed to kind of like, just like accrue resources and power forever you know Mm -hmm. um there there really isn't anything in dungeons and dragons that says like and now here's where a character's arc ends or like here's where you stop focusing on them you know um you are never supposed to stop focusing on them really and and i think that even something like um if you like think back to our vampire episode um i obviously love that episode and i think that like we made great use of this kind of like implicit RPG conceit in it, but like those aren't characters that really come to an end, you know, like the, the, the kind of like karmic punishment is that they 
deserve each other and are stuck with each other potentially for eternity, right? But, like, the game really doesn't set you up for a satisfying way for, you know, the, the characters to just, like, die and cease existing. So if you want to give them that kind of, like, you know, pathos of, of failure, then it's about, like, defining, continuing, going on as a compelling failure. Um, even, yeah, go for it. Well, I, th- I think about it not even in terms of death and failure as an end, but, like, an end period. You know, yeah. like there is, there is really like that. I think it is the exception for games to build into themselves the idea of endings, um, because they are built on like they tend to be built on these on these models or like these assumptions where an ending is a failure, and so you should you should be trying to avoid an ending at all possible costs. Um, and what I like about Heart is that it's a game that says, like, no, like, pick an ending. You know, the the biggest, like, most powerful thing you can do fictionally in for any class in this game is, like, a move that has an end for your character already in mind. You know, yeah. when you get this, like, zenith ability, you know, that is a thing that you know, ends with your character dead or imprisoned or having sacrificed themselves or having, like, abandoned this kind of, like, adventuring, delving life. Um, And, you know, it tries to do that satisfyingly, you know, and bring, like, this kind of sense of climax to your character's story. But you have to accept that this is ending, um, which I think is pretty unique in in Tabletop. Yeah. Do you you want to talk about the beats in that regard? Yeah, I think. All right, cool. So, (laughs) yeah, so what you have in this um, as like a core advancement mechanic is that you have a calling um, and there's five callings in the base book um, and they all represent like kind of different reasons that you would be down here. Um, And those callings are, what is it? Adventure, enlightenment, uh, forced, which is, you know, like you're, there because someone else is compelling you to be there through some means a heart song which is kind of like you feel a literal calling from the weirdness of the heart like you see it in your dreams or you you have this like compulsion to to be down here and penitent which is that like you uh says like you betrayed the trust of your order now racked with guilt you have sworn to make amends by venturing deep into the heart performing acts in service of your order um, and I think that like what that really allows for is a shape to your character's story that you have to kind of like think critically about because how you get advances, you get a minor advance by completing a minor beat. You get a major advance by completing a major beat. And let's look at some of what these beats are for, for example, the first, uh, calling, uh, minor beats would be something like follow orders from your masters even though they put you at risk rebel against your orders even though this puts you at risk cover up a crime that someone has committed on behalf of your masters major beats are something like um suffer the consequences of refusing to perform an important act on behalf of your masters coerce an important or beloved npc into undertaking a task they don't want to do these aren't necessarily like in character aspirations but they're things that you want to happen for the character 
And then there's kind of like um, a discussion in the the rules about how like, yeah, it's it's kind of up to both you and the GM to approach this in good faith for the GM to give you opportunities to do this and for you to take those opportunities over the next couple sessions. Um, you'll have a couple beats active at a time and those will just kind of like shade where your story is going. So like, if you want to define what's going to happen next for your character in terms of like struggles and setbacks and conflicts and, and suffering and, and difficulty, then you can like choose that menu item. If you want to define what's happening next as like this moment of triumph, uh, you know, at cost almost certainly, but like of uh, kind of reaching a breakthrough or, or pushing back against some of the like forces that are uh, trying to like corrupt them in some way, then you can do that too. And it just feels really cool to have that explicit structural conceit of the game that kind of really encourages you to not just think of your character as a fully reactive being. Um, and, you know, we've spoken in the past about how, like, there can be styles of play that are, like, fully reactive to what's going on that are still, like, very powerful and, like, fun to be around. But as someone who vibes more with the sort of proactive planning approach... Um, the fact that this game is on that same wavelength is just so welcome. Yeah, I, I really like the way that it like that the beat system kind of sets up this dialogue between you and the the game master, where you say, you know, well, internally it forces you to work towards like culminating this arc. You know, it makes you select like the you know, the major and the minor moments of your character's arc and be like, okay, I want this to happen. And then I want to work towards this. And then I want to work towards this, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And then between you and the GM, you know, it creates this dialogue where you have to then go to your GM and be like, okay, I want to do these things. And then they have to say, okay, I know that I have to provide my players with the opportunity to do these things in the course of their adventures. Um, yeah. And so, um, and, you know, then they have to create the scenarios with that in mind. Um, this is, if you don't know, this is the game that they're currently playing on Friends at the Table now. Um, and there, there was sort of a conversation in one of the most recent episodes, um, which I, which I thought was interesting where, you know, Austin, the, the GM talks about, you know, in the last session, he said, you know, uh, one of the players had a beat to kick someone off a, a high structure um, yeah. who deserves it. And Austin says, like, well, I thought you guys were going to do that last game with this character um, <laughs> who I designed for you to kick them. But then you guys kind of didn't do that. So now I'm giving you another opportunity to kick someone off a off a large structure. And I just want to make sure you know that where you are right now would count as kicking them off a large structure. Um, I kind of like the... I like kind of like the honesty and dialogue that that promotes between the players and the GM. Um, yeah. Cause I think, I think it is easy to kind of play a tabletop game where, you know, you kind of like treat the GM as this like mystery, like mystery artist who goes into their room and then like crafts a scenario. And then you as players just kind of react to that. Yeah. Um, and I, I like that this is a game that, that, provides a lot of ways to encourage you to to collaboratively like create this story um 
I, I think that's a very kind of like smart approach to it. Um, yeah. I yeah. A lot. Yeah. I have a couple of things to, to add on that. Uh, the first, I think it's, it's that it's very cute that you specified Austin, the GM, as if there are going to be people listening to this that aren't familiar with friends at the table already. Listen, um. <laughs> my ethos, it's always somebody's first episode. And there's always sure. somebody who's never heard of the thing you've heard of, you know? Right, these these are my the table ethos. is an actual play podcast focused on critical world building and, and so forth. Smart Give characterization and fun interactions between good friends, Hannah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Give it a listen. Uh, it's, a, it's a new podcast. It's a small podcast. And it deserves your support. Um, <laughs> Eric Andre voice. Do you think, <laughs> Eric Andre voice, do you think they were having fun interactions between good friends when, and you just like pick a, pick a moment from, from friends, any friends at the table thing? Uh, yeah, I'd say so. Um, yeah, I think, I think so too. It's just funny. Do you think yeah. they were having fun interactions between good friends when Hadrian murdered that fucking skeleton? Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I wanted to bring up, though, was that, like, to kind of build on your description of the the suggested and supported relationship between player and GM, I'm sure that there's ways to do it, um, and that, you know, a, a bad GM is going to figure out how to ruin any system, but mm-hmm. this feels like a system in which it is a lot harder than others to be, like... To have that classic adversarial GM relationship. Um, to sort of like view your GM as someone that you are fundamentally trying to like outsmart or or be in a, a conflict with to, to get one over on. Um, and I think about like all the time, like my college D&D game um, wasn't even necessarily like a bad game, but like there was such an adversarial relationship between the wizard and uh the gm uh because the wizard player would just find a new spell that would obviate a fight and you know just completely curb stomp everything and then the next session the gm would be like all right i have poured through more source books and found monsters that are immune to the thing that you did last time and it would just be that pattern like a dozen times over the course of like, you know, a couple dozen sessions. Mm -hmm. Um, And that feels like something that is pretty much impossible to do in this type of system, unless it's specifically what the two of you talk about wanting to do within the fiction. If you are saying to the GM that like, Hey, I want to play this like, you know, power mad wizard that is all about like brinksmanship and like pushing the edges and and figuring out like a new thing that's going to like um create some kind of immense advantage but at great cost and you know your job then is to like supply those costs and make it so that like the the consequences of this like arcane tampering are always about to catch up with me then that feels like something that this game is like, oh, yes, absolutely. We have all the tools to support you with that. What it doesn't have the tools to support you with is like that literal, like kind of out of character power gaming brinksmanship. Um, and it's just such a relief to think about that. <laughs> Having had some like really rough experiences with like understanding GMs as people to either like try to outsmart or be afraid of in some regard. Um, it's so cool to just I, not worry about that. 
I've known some wizard players in my life. Literally, you know, the wizard. Um, Mm -hmm. I, in fact, had a player who came to the, you know, the Dungeons and Dragons sessions that I've created the most annoying wizard in all of uh, tabletop. And it was like, okay, Will, why? Why did you do this? (laughs) Why are you allowed to do this? Um, But yeah, yeah, I... I really, I really appreciate kind of the efforts that Hart makes, you know, to to incentivize you to make it difficult to play the game without having an honest conversation with people at the table of like, what am I trying to get out of this character? What opportunities are there going to be for me to do those things? And like, how can I facilitate other people in doing their their beats? Um, you know, um, yeah. Which I just I like that a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Um. I want to talk briefly about um, kind of like where this game comes from Um, because it's not the first in its system and it's not the first in its setting either. Um, So then there's a question of course of like, well, why are we doing this one and not the other one? Well, to give a bit of context here, the first game in what's broadly called the resistance system is uh, called Spire, uh, the city above. Um, and that is a game that I have played. Um, I've played a, a one-shot of it. Um, I thought it was really, really good. I had an amazing time with it. Um, I think it would probably make for a bit of a bad episode of this podcast. Because structurally, what that one is about, the way that this one is about, like, you know, weird roadside picnic-type dungeon delves into the heart of, you know, spookiness, um, is that Fire is about being drow revolutionaries in this massive vertical city against the imperialist high elves. Um, And it has very specific ideas of what revolution means. Um, It has ideas of like what actions are recommended for you as a player character to take and not take as a revolutionary. Um, And I think that those can lead to very fun kind of like you know cell and mission based gameplay um but i also think that like if you want to hear us like make fun of games for not being communist enough or not being communist in the right way or thinking that they're communist when they're not or any of those things we have a backlog you could listen to those episodes we've done that before um and so like as much as i did enjoy that game i just feel like we would potentially be like treading a like uh ground that we've already tread in that way um and so i think that it's it's it was more interesting for us to look at this one where um it kind of takes those core concepts uh of like the system and of the general setting and applies them to more of that you know dungeon crawly vibe i also don't the other thing for me is that I also don't care about that stuff, you know? Like, yeah. I we've probably said this a few times, but, like, I don't want tabletop games to be, like, properly leftist. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, when we make fun of those things, I think we, we admit, or I try, you know, I try to make fun of those things because I think they stand out really obviously and they conflict with, like, other sections of the game. And I think that they, like, make for a worse game. Um, which is mainly why I make fun of them. But I have no interest in seeking out, like, a game that is, like, 
here we go. This is leftist D&D and like making fun of that specifically. Um, That is like something I just don't want to do for this podcast. Um, So that's why I didn't want to play Spy. That's why I didn't really want to do Spire. Um, Aside from just having more familiarity with Heart and thinking that Heart just seemed more interesting um, Mm -hmm. as, as something to cover. Yeah. Um, and it turns out heart is really interesting. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I think that like there are games that kind of like inform each other in a sense in that, like, like I said, they do share a setting. Um, if you're using the core setting, um, which like, I don't think is necessarily a, um, a prerequisite here. Um, it feels like a pretty, easy and rewarding game to reskin, um, as can be seen in something like Songfiel, the current season of Friends at a Table. Um, but if you're using that setting, then it kind of like ports over a lot of assumptions that come from Spire about, you know, why someone would be down here and what their relationship to the city above is. Um, and like, you know, my character, for example, is going to kind of have in her backstory some of that um like connection to spire related type stuff but at the same time you are also kind of encouraged to not sweat what's happening outside of the heart too much mm-hmm. to not necessarily go too whole hog on your backstory um understand your guys as being like people that kind of can't exist um in the city above um, and I think that that's a really cool thing about the the game that it kind of like leans into the the fundamental like weirdness and alienness of the character classes. Um, there are like pretty much all the character classes are really weird and unsettling in some way. Um, you've got the dead walker, you've got the deep apiarist, you've got the heretic. Um, and, like, even the ones that have more of, like, a social standing, um, that, like, have the Haven domain as core that are class, for example, are, like, the Hound being one of those who is this kind of, like, remnant of this legion that went down here to try to pacify the heart, but, you know, was was caught in this, like, horrific massacre. And, you know, like, you now have one of their badges and... Um, you are recognized as this like bringer of law and order and this this like helpful presence um but you're also sort of slowly being overtaken by the spirit of the person who originally held that badge um i think it's like a really important distinction to note like how weird of a version of like you know a paladin so to speak that that is um this isn't a kind of like law enforcement this isn't a kind of like, you know, night of justice that could work in the normal city. Um, and as it turns out, they have their own types of, you know, law enforcement inspire. But this is like only serving that function down here because it's like the closest thing they have. Um, and I think that like it really asks you to like consider your character's relationship to the weirdness in really productive and generative ways um, that I really appreciate. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I have anything else to say about the game. Um, <laughs> I think it is, I think it is one of those things that 
you just have less to say because it is, you know, it's simply good. Yeah. In many ways, it's just a very good game. Yeah. Um, I could I could say like a couple things about uh, if if we're like kind of in the point of uh, doing minor nitpicks. Um, which like yeah, the, the nitpicks here are minor. I think that this is like something that I pretty much unreservedly recommend for people to play. Um, it's super fun. It's it's super cool, um, and it, it it kind of like it feels like one of those RPGs that like help you be a better role player. Um, and I really appreciate that. But what don't I like? Well, um, there is this stuff involving this one little sidebar about racism that feels cowardly. Um, I'm trying to find it in the book. There it is. Um, and it's when it's talking to you about like your character's possible ancestries. And the four that they have here are drow or dark elves, humans, elfir or high elves, and gnolls. Um, and, you know, you might remember from our brief discussion of Spire that the elfir are the kind of like imperialist, um, you know, conquerors that are, uh, you know, in control of the city above. Um, so it's like, well, but how would one of them be down here? And it does kind of like make explicit that like, oh, well, you're, if you cross the door into the heart, then you've kind of like given up that, that like power that you have. And it doesn't really hold sway the same way down here. Um, and there's a sidebar where it basically says that like, hey, don't, don't play uh, a racist high elf. If you're going to play a high elf, you know, should probably be one that like isn't racist, right? Um, and I feel like that's a little, that's a weird cop-out for a game that doesn't have weird cop-outs in other places. Um, and I feel like it's, it's noticeable for being like one of the very few instances of something like that in this game where like the solution to me just seems like don't have as one of the core player ancestries the racist imperialist uh people right um as opposed to like putting in a note that says that like well you can play these guys but we're gonna wag your finger if you're if you actually like you know play them in ways that they are like culturally coded um according to their their like role in the broader setting um similarly it's like scolds you not to play um characters that like follow too many stereotypes of their ancestries so it says here like this also goes for playing a goal as a slave gnoll as a slavering beast or a drow as a sexy duplicitous spider worshiper okay two things number one i feel like there's a big difference between those two um in terms of like how offensive depictions they are um and number two fuck you uh i have in fact made a drow who's a sexy duplicitous spider worshiper for my character here and there's nothing that the the makers of this game can do to stop me Mm -hmm. yeah i think it is a thing where it's like if you really want to like get rid of this like if you really want to counter this then it has to be in the game and it cannot be in a sidebar you know yeah like if you really like, there's a, there's a bit in the sidebar where it says, like, people are people, first and foremost, not caricatures of their race. Make a person and let the story flow from there. If your player does not understand this as a person, you are not going to beat it into them with a sidebar in a tabletop RPG, you know? Yeah, like, absolutely. And if you really want to, like, 
work on this, then you have to, like, maybe consider getting rid of ancestry or, like, the concept of fantasy races, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, because that that kind of idea is, is baked in, basically, to that whole concept. Um, and yeah, yeah it, is, it is just kind of like, you know, we've seen this a ton of times in tabletop. I don't have much to say about it other than, like, this is the thing tabletop games are always doing. Mm-hmm. Um... And the last thing that I, I kind of wanted to note is um, when you're like making and advancing a character, each um, class will have uh, among its minor abilities, kind of like specific abilities that allow you to pick up usually a skill, a domain or a resistance, and then some other interesting benefit. And these can be like, passive bonuses these can be like moves that you can do etc um like for example the cleaver has the skill here um or the advance desperate measures um it says gain the desolate domain you can consume the flesh of something or someone that you have recently killed to gain a skill associated with them for the remainder of the situation um and then it also gives you opportunities in each of these classes to just like kind of take generic advances um to say that like you can also just take the desolate domain on its own and not gain anything else not gain that like you know eat something to gain a skill um benefit and the reason why you would do that is either to gain masteries or to gain um like skills or domains that you otherwise can't access with this character um like you know there's for example like the religion domain here which on the list of ones that the cleaver can just take um as a as a like an entire advance and that's the only way that the cleaver can get that religion domain um and i kind of wish that like that there was a little more of a um an evenness to this um, it, it did feel at times, uh, when I was making my character, like, there was that classic trade-off of, like, well, I could take this other interesting move that, like, really fits with my character's concept, but that would really only leave me with, like, one domain, and I don't know if that would make me a drag on the group or etc. And But then the, the, the kind of, like, secondary benefit that comes with this domain-granting ability seems pretty weak and uninteresting, and I think that, like, there's always going to be this kind of tension. Um, and I think that like spot, uh, that heart does it quite well in most cases. Cause like these classes and their lists of advances tend to be really good. But mm-hmm. I think that there is still that unresolved tension in some places between like, do I want to do this for practical reasons or do I want to do this because it's cool as hell and fits my character. Um, and I just sometimes wish that there was like, a little more that could help bridge those gaps. Mm-hmm. Feels like we're about done talking about the system proper. Yeah, I I think so. I don't really have anything else to say. Let's do it. Uh, and I want to talk about some fucking girls. Yeah, let's hear about them. Do you wanna Do you wanna do your basic pitch first, or do you want me to do mine? Uh, I can do my basic basic pitch first um why don't i just kind of like go through the mechanics of my character first um Mm -hmm. 
and then yeah we can get to kind of like the I, i'm sure that like a little bit of like the character is going to be revealed in these mechanics uh but let's just do like the you know name ancestry calling class uh advances and abilities type stuff first okay so my character is named uh Ephithon, or Eve for short that is spelled y-v-e-t-h-a-n uh she is a drow her class is hound and her calling is forced um and then as far as what she can do mechanically um she's kind of like a dedicated support uh someone who can kind of jack of all trades like most situations but who really shines in providing like resources and opportunities and breathing room for her allies um her core ability as a hound is called in the thick of it it lets her um once per session when she would mark stress to any other resistance than fortune she marks it to fortune instead and whenever she suffers fortune fallout she rolls with mastery for the rest of the situation um and then she has a lot of cool support advances such as the better part of valor which gives her the evade skill and if she succeeds on an evade roll, then all her nearby allies will roll with mastery when trying to evade until she next acts. She can kind of, like, grant skills to other people as well. Um, she has, like, a... This is an example, I think, of, like, one of the really cool types of uh, narrative typey advances that you can get. She has custodian, gain the men's skill. If you are in a populated location, you can always find someone willing to take you in to give you somewhere to sleep and maybe even some warm food. Um, she has uh, round the next corner, gained a delve skill. Once per delve, you can find an out-of-the-way location where you can catch your breath and recuperate without fear of being discovered by your enemies. You can take time to fully heal here without incurring a bane. Um, and I'm not doing all of these, but the last one that I want to highlight is she has a major advance called Forewarned and Forearmed with a kind of sub-minor advance attached onto it called Double Duty. Once per session, when you have an hour or two to spare in a landmark, you can make preparations for the coming challenges. Pick two of the benefits from the list below. You and all other characters who choose to take part in preparations gain this benefit until they next enter a landmark. Um, and those are options like uh, one piece of kill equipment, so like a weapon, gains the Brutal Tag. One piece of Delve equipment, so like, you know, climbing gear or something like that gains a trusty tag gain plus one blood mind or supplies protection um and it just feels like she would be really helpful mechanically to help forestall some of those like inevitable consequences that we've been talking about um and probably not like beasting anything on her own i don't think she has any like fascinating combos or abilities to just kind of like completely take over a situation um, but she's going to be pretty decent at most everything and just kind of like help people avoid a lot of the wear and tear that would otherwise accrue um, across the, the course of these delves. Yeah, I really like that preparation ability. Um, my only complaint with it is that I want every, abil- every bonus yeah. <laughs> that they can possibly provide. I don't want to pick. Yeah, well, because that's the thing, like, um, I don't want to, like, get too far ahead into your character, but I was thinking about how, like, oh, man, like, if if we know that we're going to get into a combat situation, then I could really focus on, like, buffing your character up in the, the most powerful way and be like, oh, you have this ability that lets you, um, like, get mind stress in order to, to be a better fighter. 
so I could give you mind protection to to protect against mm-hmm. that. Oh right, but if you roll well, then you, like you take supply stress. Um, so I should give you supplies protection. Oh damn, that's already two, and I don't have the thing that just gives you like your kill equipment, the brutal tag anymore. Um, mm-hmm. So it's like you do always feel like you want all of them, um, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of like a mark of a, a cool thing, right? Like yeah, I, 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 think I think that like as long as the GM doesn't kind of like spring it on you and be like, ha ha, you thought you were going to get into combat, but no, you actually just like, you know, chose these kill options for nothing. Um, or like, you know, I'm not going to make you roll the stress that you gave you protection against. Um, unless the GM is like specifically going either way like that, then it just feels like it's a really cool ability that lets you uh, like feel very prepared for what's ahead. Yeah. I think one of the reasons it's good is that like everything is powerful and you want everything, but you can only have a few things. So you really have to sit down and be like, okay, what do I really need right now? Um, And I think that, I think one, that's just like a good tension. And two, I think it puts you in the mindset of someone who's preparing, you know, of saying like, what are we most likely to need? I'm going to spend my limited time on those things specifically. Um, Yeah. Which I just think makes a good move. And we can talk about it, like, in terms of these abstracts right here about, like, oh, there's a tension between X, Y, and Z. But sometimes it is just going to be, like, very obvious about, like, oh, we all have, like, a significant amount of mind stress already that, like, we haven't been able to heal. I'm going to make sure that, like, we get the mind protection for the whole party. Um, mm-hmm. And and so, like, you know, it, it, it kind of, like, naturally opens up to reactions from what the game is throwing at you. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's good, um, as far as an ability goes. Yeah, yeah, so should I do the basics of my character? Yeah, absolutely. All right, so uh, Sullivan, a.k.a. Sully Cook, um, is a, she's a human woman. Her calling is enlightenment, which is the calling for basically you have a question or kind of like um, some sort of knowledge that you are pursuing. And you think that by going down into the heart, you can find the answer you're looking for. Um, and her class is Deadwalker, which is, it's, I really like this, the like idea of this class. Um, yeah. This is like, Sully is like my fastest like coalescing do not steal character ever and <laughs> yeah. I owe it I owe it to specifically the way that Deadwalker is like written. I think it is a really cool yeah. idea. Um We're recording it, this on September twelfth, I wanna be clear. Like we took no time to have our characters like on lock from the start yeah. of the month. This stuff is fast. Um this is like the version of Do Not Steal where it's a weekly podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um but yeah, so a Deadwalker is a person who is haunted slash protected by a embodiment of their death that, like, didn't take, you know? Um, its core ability, um, its core ability says basically that. Um, and uh, the first time each session that a Deadwalker suffers major blood, mind, or fortune fallout... Uh, their death manifests to protect them and just inflicts a huge amount of stress on whatever the source of the fallout is. You know, so there's this give and take of, like, if you suffer an extreme setback, you will also get this huge benefit. Um, yeah. Which I think is really the, cool. 
The little piece of flavor text at the start of that ability reads, you never knew anyone could love you as much as your own death. And I read that after... That's Sullivan Cook. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I read that after I had, like, half of my hound concept already formed. Um, But as soon as I read that lot, I was just like, oh, that's a lot. Maybe I should be a Deadwalker instead. There are so many, like, really good turns of phrase in this class book. Like, hat, hats off, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'll, I'll probably shout someone, out some Someone very horny and very goth is responsible for this, and we love them. Yeah, God bless. Um, but yeah, and then the other core ability of the Deadwalker is to basically, like, do a role to bring themselves and as many people as they want to into this world called the gray which is kind of the world between life and death um and so it is useful for like navigation for avoiding things um and also based on abilities that sully has taken for like investigating things as well um basically like the two things that sully does which i think are very cool um she has the ability to kind of to glimpse like spiritual echoes of previous events so she can kind of like delve through the past um if i really want to be on my bullshit like (laughs) like kind of like delve into the death of events that are already finished um Mm -hmm. and she has gained the ability she has gained this really cool ability which when she does that in a when whenever she does this ability in a place that has a domain that she doesn't have access to, she can gain it for the rest of the session. And I just think that's really cool. It's this one-two punch of like, I'm doing this investigation, I'm trying to figure out what's happened here, and also I just become better at all my roles for the rest of the session. I think that is just such a such a cool touch. Um, yeah. The other kind of major ability she has is something that, you know, you hinted at, Hannah, um, which is that she mm-hmm. can take mind stress to... Um, to basically roll with mastery on all attacks um, for the rest of this, like whatever combat she activates it in. Um, I also kind of like advance this move a bit to the point that um, when she takes like uh, the first time she takes stress, um, she can just gain a protection in any of the categories that she wants, which is pretty strong. Um, And also when she activates Mm -hmm. this ability, uh, uh, her, the weapon that she's using gains the piercing tag, which means that it, like, can't be, you know, anyone she targets cannot benefit from protection against it. So, you know, the idea is that she takes a little bit of mind stress and then just starts killing dudes. Yeah. Um, which is um, funny because... It, it, it uh, seems like she's... Go for it? I was just gonna say, it's funny because, um, Sully is an academic, and mainly what she does now is murder. <laughs> yeah yeah um which we'll get into it does seem like i was gonna say that like she's she's much more of like a oh my god you know an unstoppable murder machine type of way um and eve is gonna be there in the background to just kind of like provide you with little plus one bonuses in your uh efforts to do so um and then patch you up once like things go really wrong um and you're like well i killed everyone but now i have like five stress and everything whoops mm-hmm. um sully literally has a weapon that has a tag on it where if she rolls maximum damage with it she takes stress 
<laughs> which is I, another good yeah. thing about heart is that it makes it's it's very deliberate to make a lot of equipment like with drawbacks and difficulties you know yeah um and it i think that there's something really cool about it as well that like there are pretty few ways to like avoid taking stress fundamentally like you could load up on protection but like there's five types of protection and you're not going to be able to be like really um like squared away on all of them um a lot of more of what it's about is like taking two stress and healing one stress um and and that kind of like rhythm of uh recovering just enough that you feel comfortable taking the next risk um, or, it, which or feels in like... Sully's case, like making this kind of calculated gamble of okay, if I take four, if I take D four mind stress up front, then all of my rolls to kill things with my knife are just better for the rest of the situation. Yeah, and if I have better rolls, I will accomplish my. I have a better chance of accomplishing my tasks and taking less stress in general. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, take a it, take a D four mind stress to then roll to kill people with um do, do, do with four dice uh which is, mm-hmm. which is pretty good yeah it, it it feels like a game that like very much encourages you to not play passive um to take risks to press your weird buttons and to suffer consequences accordingly but in ways that feel earned and satisfying yeah cool. all right do you want to get into the good shit do we want to talk about backstories and character concepts and shit like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so here's here's what we've got for Eve. Um, she is from Spire. Um, kind of like from just a, you know, middle class neighborhood in that. I forget the name of it. You know, there's maps of Spire in Spire. But again, it's deliberately like left vague um, if you're just reading this book. Um, but she had kind of like, you know, a fairly comfortable and unremarkable life, like, um, under this like colonial rule. Um, and her job was that she was involved in a like importing and procuring business for the Alfier. Um, because the way that they're described, there's a lot of like kind of perfect stillness to them. Right. And, and they, they feel that like, you know, certain acts of like creation or, or processes are like undignified and, and uncouth. Um, so a lot of like the things that they want the end product of are kind of like the, the actual act of making them is a little too like, you know, low class for them to condone. So they have to like get them through these like secondhand channels and whatnot. And that was Eve's job basically, right? To just work with these wealthy Alfier clients and be like, oh yeah, I can get a hold of this thing for you. I can, you know, um, make sure that you you have all the, the luxuries that you're looking for. Um, and, you know, in this context, she had like a loving family. She had a wide circle of friends. Um, she had like no real vices except for just being kind of like a party girl. Um, she was seen as somebody who was like very diligent and keep your head down while she was on the clock, but who would like, cut loose while she was off the clock um with all that that entails um which is why it was like super surprising for everyone when one day Eve was disappeared by some elfier spies um and like the most serious crime that anyone could imagine her being guilty of was like sneaking in some little contraband substances in some of her imports 
But the charge that went around in the rumors was that she had been fomenting a revolution and using her importing connections to smuggle in weapons for revolutionaries. Um, and that's the kind of thing that gets you disappeared for, like, forever. Sure. That charge, as it turned out, was sort of true. She had, in fact, agreed to move contraband weaponry for a revolutionary group, but her only contact in this endeavor was a drow woman that she thought that she might be developing a bit of a crush on, who was actually an agent of the Alfair Secret Police, um, and who was pretty much, like, knowingly stringing people along for commissions to say that, like, oh, well, you know, if I get you, like, one more collar this month, then I'll get paid extra. Um... Eve had never really intended to, like, perform real revolutionary work and had only been pushed along into it by uh, a very enthusiastic, fake FBI-assigned girlfriend. Um, and nobody was actually, like, made safer by any of this arrest um, in the way that the real FBI does constantly. Hooray. Um, but, you know, the charges were technically accurate, so she couldn't exactly protest. All she could do was befriend her fellow prisoners most of whom, it turned out, have been thrown in here on the same kind of flimsy grounds that she had. Um, and she just tried to, like, eke out a living in prison. Again, keep her head down, be a model prisoner, and hope that some kind of clemency would eventually come. And as it turns out, it did. So one day, her Elphir jailers took her aside and they made her an offer. Uh, they had heard about a once-in-a-generation expedition into the heart, which is kind of like the setup that we had for our characters i think that like i'm gonna pause this when we actually get to the heart and we can like have your character show up and then go into a little more detail about like what the hypothetical campaign is um but yeah they they said that like well we need an agent down there and it can't be someone that has like known connections to us or one of our known collaborators so why don't we send you down there and give you this hound badge? Um, the the hound badge, like I mentioned earlier, kind of grants her a good number of powers. Um, it grants her like trust and reputability within the context of the heart. Um, but it also means that she's slowly being overtaken by the spirit of the original owner of the badge. Um, so it, it acts as like a, a number of things, right? It, it makes her trusted. It gives her the skills to ensure that she won't get killed instantly down there. Um, and it also acts as an insurance policy because, like, there are ways for them to stop that process, but they're going to have to do that for her um, and only if she complies with all their demands. Mm -hmm. um, so they gave her this mysterious journal that fills up its own pages with golden ink with which to carry out her mission. Um, once that journal is activated by the reality overrating powers of the heart itself, um, it would basically let her ship items of interest back to Elphir custody by overwriting dummy items that are kept in an Elphir warehouse with the ones that she's sending back. Um, and in exchange for each item she procured, the case of one of her fellow political prisoners would be opened up with the possibility of acquittals or clemency. Um, and it seemed like, you know, a good enough deal and that's why she's down here to to fulfill that deal to to say that like okay well i'm going to go on this mission but i also have this ulterior motive to 
uh, seek out these specific items that the Elfie are looking for and send them back in ways that might cause problems for the rest of the expedition. And she also has at least one, arguably two other layers of hidden loyalties under that one. But before we get to those, because those really only come up when she's in the heart proper, let's meet Sully. Man, Eve is so nice. Sully's a real piece of shit. <laughs> you say that now. <laughs> I'm just saying it's it's a lot more front loaded with with Sullivan Cook. Um, yeah. Okay. L- okay. L- let's hear the front loading then. <laughs> so I I've been burying the lead a bit, um, in that my character is not just Sully herself. Um, my character is sort of two characters. Because um, as <laughs> I said, the the dead walker is haunted by a personification of her death. Um, and so my character is the dead walker who is both uh, Sullivan Cook and uh, a woman named Thuone Nephis. So the idea mm-hmm. is that, you know, a long time ago in a, in a different life, basically at this point, uh, Sullivan Cook was a kind of like scholarship student researcher at a magical college, you know, outside the heart. Um, and Duane Nephis was a colleague of hers in the same research field um, and also kind of her biggest rival for a permanent position, you know? Um, yeah. In the way that, like, academia is kind of like, well, one of you is going to succeed at this. Uh, we're going to choose the person who, like, makes the best, uh, you know, kind of, like, makes the best discovery that is most prestigious for us. And the other one is just going to, you know, go pound sand, I guess. Um, yeah. And, you know, Sullivan's kind of, like, research expertise was, you know, this kind of, like, field of, like, a, you know, kind of, like, the spiritual mechanics of mortality, you know, uh, which was a field that she and Thuone sort of shared. They both were in this emerging field of, like, okay... We know people die. We know spirits are real. We know ghosts are real. We know souls are real. So we should be able to develop magical methods to like observe these things when, you know, when they are separated from bodies by death, you know, Um, because this is a game in which you can go to like multiple heavens that, that souls go to when they die, you know? So this research that both of them were doing in, in kind of competition with each other was about, you know, observing that process and being able to document it for the cause of magic and science. And so the thing about Sully is that she wasn't like, she wasn't bad at, at research, um, but she wasn't as good as the Monet was, you know? And yeah. it was a kind of, and the, in the arc that, that she envisioned for herself as things went on is like, she was going to try her very hardest. She was going to bust her ass. She was going to spend so many all-nighters in this lab, but it looked like Duane was just going to come up at, ahead and beat her, no matter what she mm-hmm. would do. Yeah, um, which isn't like Thuone's fault, but it's like, well, who are you going to get mad at? Are you going to get mad at like the people that you have no actual ability to um, like level any consequences against? Or are you going to like get mad at the person that's right in front of you and mm-hmm. like causing this in a direct sense yeah like what what keeps your you know in a low in like a, a low stakes way what keeps your psyche more intact to like admit to yourself that you're struggling for this like position in this academic structure that is is like fundamentally like 
exclusionary and like hurtful to people and that you would only get your success through like the failure of someone who was not necessarily like less worthy than you or is it to like start telling yourself a bunch of stories about this fucking bitch who is just like you know gonna gonna skate by you and steal what's rightfully yours um yeah so sullivan cook decided that she was gonna get there first um uh, and basically steal Thuone's research and pass it off as her own. All right. Yeah. I see what you mean about the front loading. <laughs> yeah. Um, which she did, um, and and did successfully to a degree um, in that, like, her research was accepted. You know, the research that she stole was accepted, and her her position at this academy was basically on lock, and... You know, at some point it is, you know, I think both her and Thuane knew that, like, if it is the person who has failed saying, you know, again, is if it is the word of the person who failed against the word of the person who succeeded, then that's not much of a contest. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, that's a very, that's a very rational kind of like way to look at the situation. Uh, that certainly does not preclude kind of like a late night confrontation in in Sully's kind of like place of study um, where, you know, things get heated. People start yelling at each other. Accusations start flying. And where one person involved in this altercation might possibly take out a knife and kill the other person. Uh-huh. Uh, um, you say potentially. Yeah, allegedly, you know. Okay. As far as as far as Where's long... Thuone right now? Oh, she's dead. Ah, okay. Um, so Hannah, I'd like to enlist your imagination for a second. All right, I can do this. Yeah, if you, if if your kind of like professional rival and colleague stole your prize research, passed it off as her own, and then killed you when you confronted her. Um, what do you think your reaction would be to, to um, that as you lay dying? I think I would be really chill about it, but maybe not everyone is in that same mindset. Yeah. You think, would you, would you say it's fair for the kind of expected reaction on kind of the moment of death to be like anger? Swearing eternal revenge, spite. Yeah. yeah. Do you think you'd kiss her? Do you think you'd do that? <laughs> oh, Olivia, you pervert. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, this do rules. you think you do you think you'd do that? Um, is she hot? <laughs> She's like um How much do you like like ratty nervous butch women? Uh I kiss her. <laughs> Uh, well, then you and Thuane Nephis have something in common. All right, cool. Um, uh, because that is, in fact, um, Thuane's almost in, like incomprehensible final act. Um, and something happens in that moment, which kind of binds their living and dead souls together. And now Sullivan Cook yeah. is forever haunted by the ghost of the woman that she murdered. And Thuane's ghost is not, you know, is not vengeful, is not, like, you know, poltergeisting and, like, 
throwing shit around. Um, it's almost, and it's almost worse because, like, she is, she seems, like, they can't really communicate. Like, Thuane's ghost does not speak, like, plain conversational whatever the language is in this setting, you know? Yeah. Um, Sully can try, and she's certainly tried to be like, what? What are you, what are you doing? Like, what? I don't understand. I, I killed you. I stabbed you with a knife. Um, but Thuane's ghost can seemingly only speak in, like, allusions and metaphors and kind of, like, even her most plain sentences, like, sort of ignore any attempt to communicate with her. Um, If you have ever played Dishonored, um, the heart in Dishonored, a different kind of magical heart, um, Uh is very much the vibe I'm thinking of. Um, You know, this sort of, like, bound spirit who can speak to the person it's bound to at some points, but they can't have a conversation. They can't exchange, you know, words together, and they only all that they have between them is basically like gestures at this point, you know? Um, Sully has no idea like what was going through Thuane's head at that last second. All she can see is that like this woman is with her forever and is in some sense protecting her. Um, So what do you do in a situation like that? Um, Well, uh, Sullivan Cook knows that there is one place on earth where, um, where like, ghosts where like there are thousands of of, you know maybe even millions of ghosts where like alternate futures and weird languages and like all this bizarre stuff is is everywhere um and if the alternative is like cover up a murder and try to live the rest of her life um with this ghost haunting her all the time she may as well just kind of throw herself into the heart and try to figure out some way to communicate between the living and the dead. And so that's what she's up to. Hell yeah. It's fucking sick. Um, She is. Yes, she is sick. She's a (laughs) sick woman. Yeah. So do you want to, do you want to talk then uh, about the, um, like the, the expedition that the two of them are on um, and kind of like what the the campaign setup is. Yeah, I could do a bit of that. Um, but I wanted to just as as for kind of like further flavor when I talked about you know her Sully's like ability to see like echoes of things that happened in the past or like when she takes mind stress to deal more damage. This is kind of like a blending between her and like Thuone, um, where. In the kind of, like, investigative mode, Thuone can kind of, like, call these spirits of, like, you know, like, echoes and reflections of people people speaking or doing things. And she can kind of, like, exposit, um, kind of, like, poetically on what has happened. Um, and so whether Sully succeeds that role or not is whether she can kind of, like, piece together what the hell this woman's talking about. Um, yeah. And when they do this in combat, it is, like... Sully takes on, like, the dead eyes of of Thuone, who, like, being 
a spirit now can, like, see more efficiently, like, death and the ways that people can be killed. Um, and I've just stolen the mystic eyes of death perception, but I've made it toxic and homosexual. <laughs> Very good. Um, do you have a sense of what Thuone was like before she died? Because I think yeah. that, like... That sense of, like, the final moment is very strong. And that's the sense of, like, you know, what her ghost is like is also very strong. But... So I think um, that... Yeah, go I for think it. The, I think the thing about Duane is that she was, like... She was not... She was never rude to anyone. But she was also never kind of, like, truly friendly with anyone. I think part of, like... She was, like, the kind of person who's very private and can kind of, like, observe, like, social niceties, but does not have, like, a networking talent, you know? The someone who is nobody's yeah. enemy, but nobody's friend. Um, and I think one of the, like, one of the things that made it easy for Sully to decide to, like, betray this woman is, like, not really... Just having the sense of, like, you just... You know, that she just kind of, like, holds up in her study, like, studying all these things and isn't, like, really involved with anyone um, is kind of a blank slate in that way um, and thus is easier to kind of throw under the bus. Because it's not like they really, they really only knew each other through their competition um, mm-hmm. and not really, not really personally in any way. Um, and I think yeah. a lot of, like, I think a lot of Sully's, like, current torment is kind of the realization of, like... You know, this was, like, a whole, like, I threw this woman under the bus, but she's, like, a a woman who, like, has her own, you know, she had her own feelings and beliefs, and, like, now I'm just constantly reminded of that, and I have no way to understand it, or, like, I'm just kind of fumbling trying to understand it, and I have no idea why she did the things she does, or, like, continues to do the things that she continues to do, Um, and she's, you know... Probably her best, like, her best, like, moral impulse is to try to understand the psyche of the woman that she killed. Um, because she's sort of, like, haunted by how much she clearly did not understand. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how would you feel if, because we had talked, um, we didn't talk too much about, like, the connection between our characters. Um, Mm -hmm. because, like, I I think that this... This is really a situation where, like, they both have their weird shit going on, and, mm-hmm. um, like, their connection is important, but not the most important thing. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking that, like, what if, um, you know, uh, Eve was someone that they kind of, like, knew from the general area, um, and somebody that, like, they probably, like worked with as a supplier at some times right because like they're yeah you know doing like magical research and experiments and there's probably going to be situations where it's like oh well i need this like weird reagent that i have no idea where to like get within the city why don't Mm -hmm. i like talk to this procurement girl yeah i think that's a pretty i think that's a pretty sensible connection between them yeah and I, i i kind of like the idea that like um the that the the connection in that way between Sully and Eve was very much like a a very professional thing where it's like you know you are a supplier you are a client um but something that like 
Sully might not even have necessarily realized is that like, oh yeah, well, I, I had that same relationship with Thuone, but like, we are also like a little bit of friends. Like we, you know, like she would come to to parties that I was at sometimes and we would like have a bit more of like a social relationship. And like you said, you know, Thuone wasn't like anybody's like really close friend by any means, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but But if you found out that Sully killed her, you would be like, what the fuck? Man, what? <laughs> yeah. I um you would be you would be angry as like Yeah. And and I also like the idea that like what that generates for the dynamic between the two of them is that like with Sully being like, you know, uh this inscrutable ghost woman in my head, what is going on here? And it'd just be like, wait, hold on. She had friends? And one of them's down here? Okay, you have to help me understand this fucking ghost. Hmm. I think... I'm not sure that it would necessarily be, like, you know, that directly, but... Yeah. The idea that there's somebody who, like, has that, you know, some type of, like, extra knowledge that can, that can like, help understand this person in a way that, like, you never did when you were alive. Um, it has to feel at least a little bit of tempting. Yeah, and I what my my hmm is only because like Sully is really kind of like pathologically trying not to get pinned for murder, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So here is this like potential resource on the one person that she wants to know about, but like accessing that, like trying to access that, naturally raises a lot of questions of like, okay, well, why do you why do you care? Why are you so curious about this like? Woman who, like, I guess you used to work with at university? Because I think Eve yeah. definitely was disappeared before the murder. You know? Yes, 100%. So as far as she knows, like, Duane is probably just back at the college. Um, I really like... Um, how would you feel about Eve basically just assuming that, like, Duane won the position and Sully didn't, and that's why Sully's down here? I think that that totally works. Um, I, I, I don't think that, like... Eve is, like, necessarily someone who, like, has the piercing social insight to piece this together. Mm-hmm. Um, here's the thing, though. I do want to sh- smash these two characters together um, as far as, like, their weird secrets and emotions and whatnot. Yeah. So yeah. here's my thought. What if... Uh, I think you make a great point that, like, ooh, well, I don't want to just get pinned for murder on this. So, you know, I can't just, like, bring it up in a way that would draw suspicion. But I feel like you maybe have a little more leeway in bringing it up if you are in a situation where um, you feel like there's a mutually assured destruction going on. Mm-hmm. That, that like, Sully is the one who figures out first, basically, that there is something up with Eve's presence down here. Mm-hmm. That, that it's, like, a little suspicious, that there's probably an ulterior motive, that there's like, oh, did she just like go on some secret side mission or whatnot? And then it's in a position of like, hey, I won't blow up your spot if you help me figure out my own like weird ghost thing that's going on. Because um, yeah. I feel like that that's the thing that like rams the two of them together um, while not necessarily having them really like understand or empathize each other that much. Yeah. So I think I think the. What I, what I really like about that, I like Sully getting initial kind of upper hand, um, I think probably immediately, because I think Sully would know, like, 
oh, this woman I used to buy supplies from was, like, disappeared on suspicion of treason, you know? Um, I think that is probably something, like, whatever the high elf cops are, like, come talk to you about if you've been buying supplies from this, like, woman who was convicted of treason, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think she would know that. But then I like the idea also of the dynamic getting immediately, like, more leveled as... Let, let me remind you, the the first time each session that Sully suffers major blood, mind, or fortune fallout, uh, Thuone's ghost manifests to protect her. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, if, if Sully, like, intends to keep the secret of her haunting hidden, it's not going to be, like, it's not going to be, like, possible, you know? Um, For sure. Because you're gonna, you're gonna get messed up, and then... You know, this woman's ghost is going to appear. And then people are probably naturally going to ask questions about who is this ghost. Um, so, like, yeah, I like I like this idea that they both kind of, like, have their... They both kind of understand each other's secret in a way that nobody else in the exposition really does. Um, and then neither of them can really reveal that because, you know, they are bound in this... Uh, you know, uh, mutually assured destruction of, of kind of having an inkling of the horrible things the other one is doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's briefly talk about what they're down here to do on a surface level. And then, um, I can talk about what, um, Eve is actually doing. Um, cause you know, I've I've backloaded some of the more, you know, unsettling parts of the character. Um, so the way that I conceive of it is that, like, the, the heart is something that kind of, like, ebbs and flows. It has high tides and low tides. Um, there are pulses that go out from it and, like, rewrite things and make them weird. And then there's, like, you know, those pulses get dredged back in. And sometimes there are, like, things that are left behind um, that are, like, you know, creations of the heart and, and like, remnants of a, a world that never existed. Um, and right now, the most recent pulse has created, like, kind of a once-in-a-generation low tide um, where a certain path is clear in a way that it never was before. And it was always the sort of thing where, like, oh, well, we have every reason to believe that there's, like, immense treasure and rewards and knowledge and all the good stuff that you go down to the heart to get, like, just beyond this area, but it's so dangerous to go down there and, like, nobody's ever returned. And now feels like the one opportunity for people to return. Mm -hmm. um, and the, like... Sorry, go for it. Well, I I had a proposal to add to this. Um, Let's hear it. Because we, we talked about high tide and low tide. So I was wondering if what if, like, the reason that people are, were always interested in going into this area was because it used to be, you know, like, the area around and including this, like, very kind of, like, stable and prosperous settlement within the heart that was eventually, like, <sighs> swallowed by it. And so... Yes. You know, you know that, like, okay, there were these things down there, there were these kinds of people, these kinds of artifacts, and now it's been a hundred years of heart submersion, so nobody's around to claim this stuff. And also, mm -hmm. from an academic standpoint, it's like, 
well, now we have such a clear, like, this is like a natural experiment in a sense, you know? We had this place that was relatively normal yeah. that has been subsumed by, like, the most intense energies of the heart. And now those energies are mostly gone. So we can, like, we can go in and see what happened, you know? Yeah, like, so much of time what limits your ability to, to ascertain information about the the heart is that, like, you don't necessarily know that uh, clearly of a starting point. But here, you have the starting point. Um, and, and thus, you, like, you can have that clear measurement of, like, what has happened in that, you know, intervening time. Yeah, so I really I like think- that. Yeah, I think what Sully is, like, officially along on this expedition for is, like, as an academic, you know, she mm-hmm. she has these, like, research, she's kind of, like, done this research, and she has these sources of, like, what was this place like, and what can, you know, what can I do to, you know, like, how do we compare these sources that we have to the modern, you know, our modern experiences and try to infer about what's changed, you know? That's, like, officially that is her role on this expedition. She's here as, like, an academic advisor and researcher. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, cool. Uh, so that is why we're going down here. Um, and I figured that it's, it's a sort of thing where, like, this one elite expedition was put together because... The ideas are like, oh, well, if we just kind of like let everyone, you know, just pour through, then, you know, somebody's going to fuck something up in a way that's going to like trigger another pulse and like leave most of the people on the expedition trapped. So this is like a way for them to to kind of make these dangerous delves in ways that feel like more precise and more like there's a chance of like coming out with useful things instead of just like, well, everyone got swallowed up again. Whoops. Yeah, like a free-for-all, and then somebody messed with something they shouldn't, and now hundreds of us are dead. You know. Better to send in, like, <laughs> six six people who are going for a specific area of this, like, old settlement. And then, if the worst happens, it's like, well, we lost six people. Yeah. Um, yeah, cool. So... Here's what I think. Uh, it's time to reveal what is really going on with um, Eve. Because I think that there's, you know, probably the 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 layer that, um, that Sully can, like, kind of pretty quickly figure out is that, like, oh, I bet she's here, like, on behalf of the elf here. That this is, like, part of her plea bargain or something like that. Because, um, like, she knows the charges. She knows how, like, you know she probably hasn't had like much direct experience with this but it feels like it's probably like pretty common knowledge about like you know how those groups work um and the idea that they would like kind of send her down there um she also knows definitely that like um eve was not a hound um was not someone who had any of the relevant expertise to be down here and now she is um and i don't picture the time that she was in prison to be like enough for her to really get those skills on her own um yeah but like i said there are layers beyond this um because thanks to the friendship and guidance of a girl that eve ended up becoming very close to while in prison uh she has kind of a better idea of what to do than faithfully executing uh her deal that she's down here for what she wants to do 
is hook up her awful golden journal to sources of power throughout the heart until she can effectively reverse its orientation, so to speak. Um, at which point, what she plans to do is to settle on a safe and well-connected haven and to free all of her friends back into prison by overwriting them onto the residence of that haven. Hmm. Okay. Now, I How are you feeling see... about that? It sounds like the thing that Sully could respect, if not necessarily be understand, like, why would you do that for other people? <laughs> yeah. Um... Cool. So that's that's the basic goal, right? Is I think that there's like the, the first level at which you just see her as like, oh, she's like, you know, a, a loyal and trustworthy member of the expedition. And then you're like, oh, wait, but she's actually working for the Alphir and doing these like secret missions for them um, and, and like causing us problems that way. And then you think, oh, but she's actually like trying to resist the control of the Alphir and like find ways to like slip things past them. And so maybe she is on her side. And then, of course, the fourth level beyond that is, like, she plans to do this, like, massive overwriting an entire town worth of people, um, you know, and, and like, uh, basically, like, end the individual existences of those people. Okay, I, um, my question would have been, like, is she swapping the people? Is she going to imprison an entire town of people or is she going to kill an entire town of people? I think of it more as an overwrite than a swap. So, like, I think if you if you brought the idea to her that this involves killing these people, then I think that she would, like, have her own perspective on that because she kind of has to. Um, because I don't think that she's necessarily, like, kind of steeled herself to the full horror of what this plan entails. But, like, yeah, it is killing the people. We love... Here at Do Not Steal, we love, like, ego-protective delusions. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, and then her plan also involves one of uh, her possible zenith moves as a hound, which is that once this new place has been set up, then the question is, like, well, how do you ensure that they're going to be fine down here? It's the heart. It's a very dangerous place. What she intends to do is, rather than sending back her hound badge to, like, kind of stop the effects of like the slow takeover um she intends to fully succumb to it and thus in doing so bind the protective services of the 33rd legion to this haven forever um and to to basically say like okay you guys now have like a comfortable life down here or as comfortable as you can down in the heart and you have a legion of ghost soldiers that will protect you from anything short of another zenith level ability Um, so that's her, that's her plan to just kind of like, uh, subsume her own individual will into this like broader project as well. Um, and into doing so like kind of earn freedom and earn these comfortable lives for everyone that she was friends with back at the prison. Um, would you believe if I told you that there's yet another complication to this? I would, but only because I know you well. And I don't think you would end yeah. on, I don't think you would end a character concept on, like, that kind of ending. You know? Yeah. So, here's, here's what's going on, right? 
the de facto leader of the haven that she's most considering overriding is this girl named Emery. And Emery is great. She's very friendly. She's diligent. She's clearly making the best out of dealing with a whole lot. And she and Eve hit it off pretty quickly, right? Like, in the context of being down in the heart, Eve is very, like, controlled and professional and distant. But she finds it, like, very easy to open up around Emery and, and like, you know, be a little more of, like, the person that she used to be, um, who is somebody who, like, really could cut loose and, and be, like, warm and sociable and, and, and happy. Um, and, like it's really easy to open up to Emery in ways that honestly remind her a lot of, uh, if you recall, that girl that she was falling for back in prison who was Uh-oh. named... It says here Emery? That... No, that's not right. Wait. Wait, Uh-oh. which one is Emery? Uh-oh. Uh-oh is right. <laughs> uh, that feels like a really important distinction to make, but for some reason, E finds it very hard to keep track. And it makes the decision of how to proceed with all of this very complicated and fraught. Mm-hmm. Because there's a part of her that thinks like, well, I have to abandon or massively rethink this plan because I can't do something like that to Emery. But another part that says like, well, but you could just overwrite her with Emery and I think it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, you're starting to see like the breakdown of this very controlled character that has like these, you know, layers of plans upon plans and schemes upon schemes and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, she is very much losing it. And I think that this would be, if we, I was playing this out, I would like kind of deliberately leave it up to the GM for like, yeah, I don't know what the true situation here is, but it feels mm-hmm. like there's a couple of possibilities, right? The one is just that like the, the two girls that she's thinking about are just very similar people and she likes them for similar reasons. Um, and she's been down in the heart long enough that it's like kind of, messing her ability to keep names straight and you know this like making her like confuse the one for the other a little bit Mm -hmm. that's probably the simplest explanation but it's still like a little unnerving another is that the emery that she sees down here is a heart's blooded person somebody who is constructed by the heart in an attempt to like mimic a real person or like be a kind of like version of a person that never was or something like that you know, it's it's something that the book says about the heart a lot is that like it plays back to you things that you expect to see. Yeah. Um it's like trying the, to one of the like yeah. repeative motifs of the heart is that it's trying to give you what you want, even if it doesn't really mm-hmm. like understand that or like how to do that. Um it's like trying to give you it, it is trying to like fulfill your desires in a very like bizarre and alien way. Yeah. And and this is like honestly kind of the the most relieving of the options because mm-hmm. it would just mean that like oh well then this is just kind of like this is already kind of the same person as like my Emery and I can just you know yeah. overwrite the real one over the fake one and it'll be fine mm-hmm. um, which is still very disturbing in its own regard but like you can see how that offers an escape valve right it's ego protective as we've said it's ego protective yeah. Um, and then the third possibility is that the Emery that's in front of her right now is all there is and all there will ever be, and that the Emery that she's remembering from the prison is the one that's merely a product of heart exposure messing with her head and making it difficult for her to keep track of things. 
And if that's the truth, then she feels like she can't possibly go through with the original plan. So, like, you know, it's very hard to imagine who she could confide in about all of this or ask for guidance. Um, the immediate, like, instinct for someone that she would, like, confide in while here is Emery, but obviously that's not going to help in this situation. <laughs> hey, babe, um, so I think you might not be real. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe you are real. Maybe you're more real than the babe, other are you. are you real? <laughs> can, I, can I just, like, get a quick check on this? Like, are, are, are you, like, a real person? <laughs> babe, can I vent? I don't know if you're real or not. Yeah, no, listen, I... We're joking about this, but like it's it's very relatable to me. I've dissociated long enough that like I've had feelings like you know not not the the exact same types of things, right? But like you know, I I, I don't think that it's quite as like you know ridiculous as as we might be joking about it being. Mm-hmm. No, anyway, yeah. especially like literally within the fiction of this setting, like all of this is eminently possible, you know? Yeah. Like, um, we're, we're and then in- of course you know the. Oh, sorry, go for it. I was just saying, like, we're in a corrupted and bizarre place. I was thinking even, like, there could be a time displacement thing happening where, like, the future in which Eve will overwrite everyone in this village, bringing the, like, prison Emery to overwrite heart Emery might have already happened and thus be, like, bleeding back into the past, you know? This oh, woman, man. This woman could be like Emery because in the future she will be Emery. Yeah, and I, I I would highly encourage, like, you know, the GM of this hypothetical game that we're talking about here to just, like, roll with this and, and have the most, like, you know, fucked up and deranged version of the, the like, resolution to the storyline possible. Um, but yeah, that's that's pretty much where she is, you know? Like, I, the, the last, like, note that I kind of want to make is that, like... Um, Part of the strain that, like, Eve is struggling under is the broader idea that, like, as a hound, people so thoroughly trust her and support her. And, like, she has that move where, like, people will just take her in, no questions asked, right? Um, But she, like, knows that she's planning to betray them and that, like, you know, A, she's a fake hound. B, all hounds are kind of fake, in a sense. Um, And, like, she's in a position to know that. Um, And... You know, like, I, I, a lot of what she's feeling with Emery is, like, kind of individualizing that collective problem, you know? Like, making it more comprehensible and more immediately painful to, to just kind of be like, oh, well, you know, there's this person who's, like, showing me kindness, and am I going to have to, like, show them cruelty? Um, but, you know, I think that the one person that she really has the ability to, like, confide in about this and and try to, like, get some kind of shape on uh, 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 what's going on from uh, would be Sully. So I think that, like, as much as these characters, like, probably wouldn't, like, get caught up with each other's, like, you know, weird magic shit and emotions in other contexts, I feel like it kind of eventually ends up happening. Not necessarily in a way where, like, they, you know, become friends or anything, but... I, I feel like there is a sort of, like, emotional intimacy by necessity through being, like, okay, well, our mutually assured destruction thing means that, like, you're the only one that I can really trust about any of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there is, like, a sympathy between them. Because, like, Sully is also... Su- Sully is somebody who has betrayed, like, implicit trust, you know? Like, 
Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I've been thinking about a lot and kind of like I'm putting into to Sully is the idea that like an individual person through like structures that they never like that they never wanted to participate in and like never had any hope of changing could put someone in, you know, can and do put people in situations where like they, they do awful things in order to ensure their own survival. You know, if you were someone like Sully who, where like the thing that is keeping you from like, like kind of like a life of like languishing on like the edge of, of poverty in like some random slum is this like, connection that you happen to have to this university and like it requires you to beat out a bunch of other people to to succeed this position like you see how somebody gets to the point where they decide to do an awful thing multiple awful things in order to you know like kind of maintain that that position you know and Mm -hmm. i think this is kind of like this is kind of the thing that the two things that are going through Sully's head at all times are the like rationalization of like, you know, the rationalization that she tells herself of like, you know, I did this thing because like the alternative to me was this like fate that was like horror, you know, this like awful fate that I shouldn't have had to, had to suffer. So I, I can't be blamed for the things that I do in order to try and avoid that fate. Um, and yeah. that is also kind of combined, that is also kind of like clashing with the like emotional reminders that she has every day of like, you know, the people whose life, you know, the woman whose life that she ended in order to like avoid this fate of hers and like how, you know, she can rationalize her decision and it was also a monstrous decision. Um, and the fact that like she is kind of like denied the catharsis of like being punished in the way that she, like, thought that she would be for that decision, like, continues Mm -hmm. to make that conflict a lot. I think you get a lot of, like, the kind of two modes that you get of Sully are kind of, like, Sully the survivor and then Sully the, like, um, girl who is constantly, like, sweating out of all of her clothes as she, (laughs) like, think you know, has these, like, horrible, like, flashbacks to the things that she's done um, and continues to do in in the cause of, like, understanding this thing um so i think Mm -hmm. if like eve comes to her with this like oh my god i'm stuck between these like really awful decisions um i don't think sully is exactly helpful in that but she certainly knows about like awful decisions that involve betrayal and how they haunt you for the rest of your life so yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. i like these two yeah she, I, I can't stress enough that Sully has, like, no people skills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, neither of us have the compel skill, do we? No, no, not at all. Sully's yeah. skills are delve, discern, endure, and kill. So. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Really, I again, I love how much the skills here just, like, really shade what kind of person you're making. Mm-hmm. Um, just very hostile. <laughs> all right cool um i have like a little more kind of like nice skills uh i have delve evade hunt kill and mend uh so you know some of those are nice some of those are can be used to help people yeah it's fine listen you can use um discern i guess to help people 
<laughs> yeah, she's an academic. That's why she's down here. Yeah, you can kill someone's problems. Yeah. <laughs> just, just like plunging a knife into someone while a little thought bubble above her head says, "I'm helping." <laughs> I'm. <laughs> yeah, but it's one of those like really wobbly, like sweating thought bubbles. God, that's awful. <laughs> I don't want to hear about a wobbly, sweating thought bubble. Listen, uh, I I did the, I did the when I did the pick crew, I, I you know I did it a specific way. Um, yeah, Sully Sully is a woman who is always going through it in some way. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think that like. I don't want to say you have to be because I don't want to like preclude the possibility of like interesting characters that that do something else. But like, I feel like in a sense you kind of have you do kind of have to be if you're going to be down into heart, you know. If you if you want to like if you want to, for example, play a character who is like coming undone from the psychic stress of the crimes that she has committed, heart has your back. Heart yeah, is like absolutely. I have a wonder. Heart is like I have a wonderful selection of mind fallout for you. <laughs> uh, girls love mind fallout. Let me look at some. Let's look at some fallouts, for example. Okay, so as far as uh, as far as mind fallout goes, you know we got, you know we got uh, clouded, we got fascination, we've got shaken, we got vulnerable, we got weird. If you're if you're looking for more majors, uh, major mind fallouts, we got some delusions, some despair, memory holes, scarred, unsettling. You know, it's just it's a great time down here in the heart. Yeah, we have all sorts of unsettling bullshit down here. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about the beats that we picked out? I think I do. Yeah. So as we were like making these characters, um, because because we kind of like because we develop them at this like kind of advanced level, and because the because the system is so focused on mechanical progression also being narrative progression, uh, we decided to like mark down some beats as uh, mark down some beats as completed and mark down some beats as like active like things that we would be trying to pursue in you know in kind of like service of developing these characters more yeah importantly in this game like you really can't um like uh what am i trying to say here you really can't like advance your character without having completed these beats in the first place um so it ends up in situations where like yeah, if you're if you're making a character that's kind of uh not just given the starting advances, then you kind of have to think about it in terms of uh what you've already done. Um and it's a cool way to like, you know, shade out the the history of the character. Yeah. Um so do you want to do your completed beats real quick? I don't think we have to go into like super detail on any of these, but just kind of like list them and like to, to kind of, like, flavor the characters past and future, and then, like, if we have a particularly good idea for 
of like details for these things just shout it out yeah um so my completed major beat is perform a truly reprehensible act on behalf of my masters sick um which great yeah we we love just having something like that um in the character um and my completed minors are forge a friendship or romantic relationship with an npc uh i've mentioned one npc down here into heart so you can guess who it could be yeah uh completed minor send a requested resource strength d8 or higher back to your masters rather than using it yourself and completed minor uh receive a time critical mission that leads you away from your other objectives mm-hmm. yeah um my marked beats for sully um my minor ones were uh, take minor mind fallout meet someone from your old life who's trying to get you to give up on your quest gain access to knowledge that someone tried to conceal and then her completed major beat is to sell or sacrifice a d12 resource to secure a secret um very cool so yeah i would i thought it would be interesting to have sully run into uh somebody from kind of like the the old university who is also down here for academic reasons who is like Simp- not overtly hostile to- hostile to her, but is like, hey, so about the about the murder that happened at the college, <laughs> like right before is that your murder, like right before you disappeared, like, and I imagine that like trying to get you to give up is like, look, just go back and turn yourself in. Like, what are you doing down here? Like, this yeah. is this is just gonna get you killed. You should at least if you're in jail, you're alive. Um. And Sully being like, mm-hmm. no, I think I'd rather die. Thank you. Because <laughs> she's really, really well-adjusted woman. Yeah. I I love how, like, mentally well she is. She, you know, her, her, her primary skill is Delve. She is a woman who knows how to go forward into unknown and dangerous territory. And by golly, that's yeah. the plan. That is the plan. So yeah, what about about active beats for the future? Yes. Um, Okay, I'm going to start with my active minors. Um, You're supposed to have two beats active. Uh, We we decided to have four beats active, three minor and one uh, major. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, sorry about that. Whoops. (laughs) But here's what we have as my active minors. Find a sanctuary where your masters cannot reach you. Mm -hmm. Um, Which I feel like is going to be... Something that I want to kind of, like, um, do is, like, as we be approaching the end of this character, um, to have this situation of, like, oh, she's, she's about to, um, she's, like, pretty much about to, uh, go on the end of this quest and about to, uh, you know, engage her plan to, uh, use her diary to overwrite everyone in this haven. I think that I would want to give her a compel advance before that so that she could be able to start lying to people about it and, um, appear as if she is just doing a nice version of her, uh, like, plan that doesn't involve killing people. Um... And I think that that would kind of involve, like, I guess what would it involve? Convincing people that she's just uh, going to, 
detether the diary in a way that like keeps them safe. Um, and I like the idea that she kind of like ropes people in to helping her with her like ultimate dangerous and nefarious plan. Um, it, it seems like a, a nice shitty thing to do, frankly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's that. Um, and then what else is there? Uh, there's claim you're doing something on behalf of your masters when it is in fact for your own ends. There's perform a seemingly unconnected action for your masters that has grim consequences. Um, and then the last one is my active major, which I've saved for last for good reason here. Um, that one says... An important or beloved NPC dies after you bring them into your master's schemes. Uh-oh. It's not looking good for Emery, folks. No, no, it's fucking looking awful for Emery here. Um, yeah, frankly, the poor thing. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know exactly how that would end up for her, but it would end up very poorly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, one of your questions is how this would end up, so. Oh, yeah. I, listen, you're going to have to figure that one out. Nice. Thanks. Thanks for just... Yeah. Thanks for dumping that Remember out. to be mean. Oh, I will. <laughs> Remember to be super mean. Oh, I will. Right. Uh, so cool. As far as Sully's active beats, um, for her minor beats, I had put the acquisition of knowledge above preserving the lives of your allies. Sully is a great woman who makes great decisions uh minor minor beat number two is destroy evidence or rhetoric that proves your task to be impossible um her task is a reminder being to like achieve like a full communication between the living and the dead um uh and her third minor is to succeed at a task that someone has recently failed to achieve um and the final major beat is to kill someone who is trying to stop you from claiming knowledge (laughs) <laughs> again just a woman who makes the best decisions is always you know doing good out there always helping people yeah yeah cool alright yeah do you want to do questions let's do our questions yeah alright hit me with your silly one hmm. so my my silly, my silly question is basically, um, what is Sully's like shittiest butch outfit, and how is it thankfully completely ruined during a delve? Okay, I can make it very silly and very shitty. Okay, you ready for me to do that? Yeah, go for okay, it. Okay, so here's what we've got. Um, we have her wearing like three flannel shirts, basically. One of which that she's wearing normally, another of which she has over her shoulders to keep her a little warm, and the other of which she's tied around her waist like a belt. That is so much. (laughs) (laughs) Why would you do that? Uh, I don't know, I just wanted to hurt her. That's her casual outfit, basically. Yeah. Mostly when I imagine kind of like Sully's butch style is she's wearing kind of like collared shirts and vests and like she she dresses like a she dresses like an old like an old uh English professor. Um basically. Yeah. Um I feel three, that. three final shirts is a lot. So how did they get ruined? Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel 
like a monster steals one of them and then she feels like the outfit isn't worth doing anymore. <laughs> like some some horrible shape like comes out from the darkness and steals it while like, you know, uh while like the 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 party is like camping. Um and it's just like, oh, you suffer like two supplies uh, stress. And she's like, well, I can't do it with just two anymore. That wouldn't make sense. You've you've ruined this woman. (laughs) It's a silly question. Those are (laughs) non-canon. Fair enough. Um, Do you want to go to my serious question or switch back to you? Uh, Let's do my silly question now. Um, Imagine Eve is in a modern AU. What's the corniest and most harmless piece of media that could fuck with her head? How would she react if given a haunted Pokemon ROM hack? <laughs> um, I think she would treat it very seriously. <laughs> yeah. I think Eve is the kind of person who, like, tells, who's like, if people start saying Candyman, she starts sounding like, guys, guys, come, stop, 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 Jesus. Yeah. Like, She's, she's just like eyes wide be like, I'm learning so much about what Gengar has been through. <laughs> she just like takes it very seriously. Um, and, you know, if she hears a not that she like believes everything, every spooky story that she hears necessarily. But it's like, what mm-hmm. if, you know, like, yeah, what if one yeah, of yeah. these things is real? And you get, like, murdered in a dark alley because a woman asks you if you like her smile and you respond, you know? Like, mm-hmm. gotta keep wary of this kind of stuff. Yeah, 100%. Uh, serious question. Mine was, um, <laughs> I, basically I'm asking you to detail an instance in which Sully shamelessly betrays a member of the Expedition's Trust. And this doesn't have to be Eve, um... Yeah, we can keep that kind of like general, but like Sully being a person who like her default reaction being to choose herself over another another person. So like, uh, just what's your best idea for how that could happen? Yeah, I so here's here's how I think of it because I think that it could be with Eve um, to kind of say that like. You know, we we have that situation of mutually assured destruction that they've been talking about. But I think that, like, because the versions of it that Sully is at risk from are still tied to what's going on in the um, Inspire. And, Mm -hmm. like, kind of the further we get into this new life in heart, like, they can't reach her as much. I think she, like, eventually kind of, like, realizes that, like, well, there's no actually reason for me to keep up this mutually assured destruction bit. So I think that there's like a moment where there's like a little heat that's coming on her that that people are kind of like seeing as, you know, um, like, oh, how much can we trust her? She's clearly got like her own weird shit going on. She's just like very sort of like standoffish academic who has like some secrets. Um, And I think that like as a way of just kind of like saying i don't have time to deal with this shit right now like this is absurd i don't want to give it the time of day i don't want to have to respond to this stupid stuff i think she just kind of like throws it back onto eve and says like oh yeah by the way do you know she's been working for the elf here this whole time and just kind of letting that be like the new issue that is you know occupying everyone's mind and and like 
causing everyone to to kind of like be like what the fuck you know can we trust this person anymore wow um what somebody's I, I, a real piece of shit i you know it seems in keeping in what you've described uh for her i think that like you know you've you've identified her as somebody who's like really self-interested and really kind of like brutally to the point somebody who like does not have a lot of sentiment who doesn't necessarily like mince words or or like hem and haw and i think that like if she identified a situation where it's just like i could spend the next like day just like dealing with these like accusations and like trying to prove my innocence or reassuring people that i'm worthy of being trusted or i could just divert all that attention onto someone else so that i can focus on what i care about I think that she would absolutely take that opportunity. Yeah. I think I think key to Sully is that she is what you described, but also, like, an increasingly bigger, like, proportion of her time is her being haunted by, like, the kind of, like, what did you say? The kind of, like, sentimentality that she, like, wishes that she could escape, you know? Yeah. Um, but I don't think she necessarily has that sentimentality for eve in particular no so i think that there there is a real sense in which just like okay um if i'm going to be able to figure out my sentimentality stuff then i need to throw you under the bus right now bye well i think the worst part is that after throwing eve under the bus is when she would start to be like fuck you know it's like once her actions start impacting another person negatively then she is able to kind of like slot it into her experiences and be like ah fuck it's like oh my god imagine if that had happened to me no but more no not like that more like um in that like the way that she is kind of like being haunted is the way that she like destroyed another person's life and so when she brings harm to somebody else she she then is like fuck this is what i hate you know for sure yeah like she she has this like she is able to tell herself before she does the thing that like i can just do it and it's not an issue because yada yada that's how it is down here we're all out for ourselves and then she does it and she's like ah Fuck, we are tied together forever. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, because after like doing this to Eve, then she like then they still have to go on the journey, actually. <laughs> you know? Like Yeah. And I, I think that it probably works out. Like it's a very tense moment for Eve, but like I think that she eventually comes like that kind of springboards her to the place where she can like kind of come clean and be like, Yes, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a bound dog of the elf here and they sent me down here for this, but I've been trying to resist them and you know, I'm I'm here to like band together with you guys. And she like, you know, uses that as a as a catalyst to kind of like get people's help in her plan to overwrite them. Alright, let's go to let's go to your ser- let's go to your serious question, because that gave me a great idea. Let's do it. Uh, final question of the episode. Here's how we're going to end it. Eventually, Eve's beat to get Emery killed goes off. How does it happen? Is it by Eve's hand or someone else's? So I think it's somebody else. And I think it is somebody who was another agent of the Elfier that basically Eve never suspected. Um, and Emery is killed essentially as like a... 
maybe, like, the intention was not necessarily to kill her. Maybe it was just to kind of, like, um, detain her or, like, startle her or frighten her. But it was basically a way for this agent to, like, get at Eve by going to, like, a different, more vulnerable person um, as a way to kind Mm -hmm. of, like, rein her back in. It's like, you've been, you've been taking some real liberties out here. And we just need to remind you, like, who is actually in charge. And then, like, Emery probably resists or something goes bad and she ends up dead in this altercation. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> oh! <laughs> it's not good. No! <laughs> Emery! No! But also now... You kind of don't have to worry about overwriting her because she's dead. So, if if you if you said that to her, she would be so fucking bad. Uh, I feel like Sully has the understanding not to say that, but also to kind of be like, well, if, in her head, she's like, well, if you think about it, it's not the worst thing that could happen to her. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, God. I think at this point, you know, this is after Sully is, like, really fucked up with Eve and is, like, trying to get back into, trying to get back into good esteem with her a bit. So she'd be like, okay, I probably shouldn't say that. Even if it's true. Yeah. I, I think that, like, from that situation, it would kind of be like, okay, my only hope now is that there is a real Emery back in the prison and, and that I can bring her here. Because, um, like, if if... If that's not something that's possible, then what am I going to do? We we sort of at one point had this ethos of, like, we are not going to sketch the end of the character arcs. But I feel like if we are ever going to do that, like, Heart is the, is the campaign to do that. I don't know if you have a compelling, like, fine, you know, idea for, like, the end of Eve's story. Um, I don't really. And I, I, I think that, like, when we talk about, like, how great it is that Hart gives you, like, this incentive to really clearly think about, you know, where your character ends, I think that it would be, like, kind of dramatically satisfying for her to, like, to basically execute her Zenith plan. But I also think that it would be dra- dramatically satisfying in a way for her to not do that. Um, I think that, like, it's absolutely a situation where, you know, because if you get two major fallouts, then those can be combined to a critical fallout and that kills you. It's very possible that she just doesn't ever actually get to, um, like, execute her plan. Mm-hmm. And I think that, like, there's a really kind of, like, bleak and karmic almost version of this where, like, she dies before getting being able to execute her plan and is remembered by the people of this haven as like this great hero that was like you know sent here with like these shady motives but like rebelled against them and stood up for us and like we did everything you know like it's because of her that we're like standing here today mm-hmm. um i think would be like really cool um i think it would be cool if like you know some time in the future after she's like long gone if someone was like oh remember that like hound that came and basically like you know saved our town and made it a safe place to live like she was trying to do something involving this journal um and she said that 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 it was going to like you know strike a blow against like the people that forced her to be down here like what if we what if we finished that for her 
um, and in doing so, like, <laughs> you know, but I think, th- I think that, like, I do want to leave it ambiguous, right? Because I feel like that there's, I don't think that there's any actual, like, happy way for this story to end for her. But I think that there's, like, so many different ways for it to end that are, like, satisfyingly fucked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I asked the question, but I also don't really have, like, a... I don't have, like, a final idea for, like, where Sully goes. I think it is kind of the tone, like, the, like, idea I'm hitting is, like, sometimes people make an awful decision because they're in a bad place, and then sometimes they just, like, suffer for the decision for as long Mm -hmm. as they live, you know? And that's depressing. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I feel like... It, it it does seem like it would be appropriate for uh, Sully to have one of the kind of, like, Zenith beats or critical fallouts that don't directly kill you, but that just kind of, like, leave you in a fucked up place that makes you a bit of a cautionary tale. I was thinking either that or one of the Zenith slash beats slash critical fallouts where you just kind of, like, go out in a blaze of glory. Yeah. Um, or not glory necessarily, but like in those last moments, like you do something that is like bizarre and almost impossible. And like, you know, maybe that is like the, maybe that is like what she was able to salvage of her life, you know? Um, I think she definitely never gets that closure with Thuone. And it is kind of like, I, I'm thinking like, it's probably not possible to have this communion with the dead. Like, you can kind of, like, interact with their spirits, but you can't understand each other, you know? That possibility ends when someone dies, you know? And so I think mm-hmm. I think no matter what, it is, a, it is kind of a tragedy. But we're thinking about, like, where... Is there, like, kind of, like, a glimmer of something else in that tragedy? Or are we just going full tragedy? And then, I don't know. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and I, I, I think that, you know, it's just a really cool game because it gives you all the tools to, like, set all those up. And we're talking about having multiple cool possibilities to end these characters' arcs. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have, like, one cool idea for that, that's great. If you have multiple to choose from, depending on, like, where the game goes and how it develops... That's even cooler. Um, and I feel like these two would be extremely fun to play. Yeah. Um, I've said this about a few games for sure, but Heart, I, I, I wish I could play Heart. Yeah. Because uh, it's, it's a really like interesting game. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, if that's everything, uh, where can people find you on the internet, Hannah? You can find me on the internet at Hannah Yolo on Twitter, which is H-A-N-N-A-H-Y-O-L-E-A-U. Oh, uh, you can find, That's it. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Great Reeb, oh, which is a type of bird. You can find a pinned tweet there with links to my other two podcasts. Uh, novel Not New is a visual novel slash like narrative game based game club. And Attention Duelists is where me and my girlfriend watch all of Yu-Gi-Oh! So... Or not all of Yu-Gi-Oh. Oh, yeah. All of the, like, Yu-Gi-Oh that has Yu-Gi in it, you know? Yeah. We'll probably end it by watching the Bonds Beyond Time movie and be like, wonder who these other two dudes are, but there's Yu-Gi. Uh, yep. 
So yeah. Hell yeah. All right. Uh, feels like we're done. Yeah, I think we are. We don't really have a sign off for this podcast. No, we don't. So, uh, until next time, suffer critical fallout. Uh, no, that's bad. <laughs> until next time. Until next time, hit your Zenith beat. That, that's also bad, but that's also way. bad. Don't hit your. <laughs> but Zenith. in a good way. <laughs> Uh, we are encouraging our listeners to hit their Zenith beats. It'll be so cool. No, we are not. Um, we are not doing that. No, we are not doing that. It's uh, a legally unactionable. It's a legally unactionable exhortation. <laughs> there you go. Bye, everyone. Bye.